Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 647 for release on Sunday, July 18th, 2021. On WaveScan today, return to the radio scene on Bougainville in the South Pacific. Our ancient DX report for 1924, part two, and our Bangladesh DX report. In our program today, we return to the radio scene on the South Pacific island of Bougainville. And in a sweeping panorama of time, Ray Robinson presents the first 30 years. Thanks, Jeff. Bougainville Island is 120 miles long and 40 to 50 miles wide. It's the main island in the Bougainville archipelago of 168 islands, which in turn are the northernmost island cluster of the Solomon Islands. Bougainville is politically linked with Papua New Guinea, yet it is more closely linked with the Solomon Islands than it is with New Guinea, geographically, linguistically, culturally and racially. Wireless came to Bougainville more than a 100 years ago with the installation of Australian-made AWA equipment, which was taken into service in January 1916 under the Australian callsign VIU. In those days, many of the closer Pacific islands that had been annexed by the United Kingdom were administered from Australia. Half a dozen years prior to the commencement of World War II, the first small pedal wireless station was installed on Bougainville Island in 1933. Wireless station VIU was a small operation in a single room located on Kangu Hill overlooking the ocean at Kieta Harbour on the eastern side of the island. The Bougainville station and other similar facilities with a combined wireless receiver and Morse code transmitter were powered by someone riding or pedalling a stationary bicycle with an electrical generator attached. In 1939, a new model radio transceiver, the AWA-3B, was introduced into Bougainville Island with a newly designed transmitter that could send in either speech mode or in Morse code. At that stage, a dozen or more locations in Bougainville were equipped with a pedal wireless, and their usage extended island-wide, with Kieta VIU as the key station. At that same time, the pedal wireless network in Bougainville was also being developed for usage when necessary as a coastal watch network that could report on potential enemy activity in the area. However, after a quarter century of active service, the Bougainville station was deliberately damaged and then set on fire on January 23, 1942, right at the time when Japanese warships entered the Kieta Harbour. After Japanese forces took over Kieta town in 1942, they dug tunnels into Kangu Hill and they established an underground hospital facility and a radio station. The frontage to these tunnels was faced with a concrete facade, which also prevented a collapse of the entrance area. It would be presumed that the antenna system for the Japanese radio station at Kangu Hill was installed above the tunnels, though no doubt in disguise. 
During the following year, 1943, on November the 1st, American forces staged a return invasion to Bougainville, though their chosen location was not Kieta, but rather a new site on the western side of the island in Empress Augusta Bay that became known as Torokina. The first American communication station at Torokina was established a few days later in a hastily constructed native hut along a muddy trail leading inland. Three months later, after the arrival of a prefabricated wooden Dallas hut, an entertainment radio broadcasting station was inaugurated on February 14, 1944. Initially, this medium wave station was operated locally as a volunteer effort without a call sign, though soon afterwards it was identified under the call sign WSOO and subsequently as WVTI. As WVTI, the station identified initially under the loosely administered Mosquito Network, though this affiliation was afterwards changed to the Jungle Network identification. When the American station WVTI with 1 kilowatt on 680 kHz was removed from Torokina for reinstallation in the Philippines, the wooden building on Bougainville, together with some of the leftover electronic equipment, was taken over by the Australian forces who were just beginning to move in. The Aussies installed temporary low-power radio equipment into the almost empty American building, which was inaugurated with an unauthorised call sign 9AC and taken into service in July 1945. The legitimate 9AC, a 200-watt mobile station on 1280 kHz, arrived from Australia soon afterwards and it was inaugurated mid-year 1945. After just a little over a year on air at Torokina, the Australian 9AC was transferred from Bougainville to Ley on the island of New Guinea. Interestingly, both the American forces and the Australian forces were noted consecutively with the broadcast of radio programming on shortwave. On March 28, 1944, the American radio war correspondent George Thomas Falster was noted with a war report for NBC in the United States. This report was broadcast on shortwave from Torokina and it was relayed to California on 17980 kHz by station KHE at RCA Kahuku, Oahu in Hawaii. Two months later, in May 1944, the American Radio Torokina was noted in Australia with a relay of commentaries for the United States via Numia Radio in New Caledonia. In fact, during that era, Radio Torokina was noted at different times of the day on four different shortwave channels, 8800, 9255, 12840 and 14500 kHz. Two years later again, Radio Bougainville was noted in Australia using one of those same shortwave frequencies, 14500 kHz. This was the last occasion that Torokina was noted on shortwave, and it would be presumed that the broadcast originated with the Australian forces, even though this frequency was previously in use by the Americans. Thank you, Ray Robinson at KVOH in Los Angeles. In our program last week, we presented the story of the highest weather temperature ever recorded in Canada, 49.6 degrees Celsius, that's 121.3 Fahrenheit, at the small riverside town of Lytton in British Columbia. 
Well, just last weekend, the highest ever temperatures were recorded in many places in California in the United States, and in particular in Death Valley. Death Valley is 282 feet below sea level, the lowest point in North America. And its highest ever weather temperature was recorded at 134.1 Fahrenheit. That's 56.7 Celsius on July 10, 1913. The World Meteorological Organization lists this high, 134.1 Fahrenheit, as the highest weather temperature in the world. Well, just last weekend, the temperature in Death Valley reached close to its highest ever. I'm CNN meteorologist Allison Chinchar. Nearly 30 million people are under some type of heat alert on Sunday as this big, intense heat wave continues across much of the southwest. This has been a very prolonged heat wave. Death Valley likely to hit 130 today, very close to 130 yet again on Monday. Sacramento still triple digits for at least one more day. There are many other claimants around the world that list high weather temperatures, including Africa, India, and Australia, though no seem to have recorded higher than Death Valley. Interestingly, Death Valley recorded the world's highest ground temperature also at a boiling 201 degrees Fahrenheit, 93.9 degrees Celsius, on July 15, 1972. Death Valley is an international tourist attraction, and in addition to its lowest elevation and its highest temperatures, as well as its interesting historical backgrounds, a strange phenomenon known as sliding stones or sailing stones is evident at this location. These stones, some weighing many pounds, leave a clear track from where they have moved. Recent research shows that these stones are occasionally encased in ice, and they are then moved by strong winds. Towards the end of the year 1934, a radio communication station was installed in Death Valley within a small community known as Cow Creek. A small radio hut was constructed, and a radio receiver and transmitter were installed, together with its own power generator, radio mast, and antenna system. A resident engineer operated this shortwave station. And now, Death Valley Day. And Death Valley has another connection with radio and television. Death Valley Days was an old-time radio and television series featuring true accounts of the old American West, particularly the Death Valley area of southeastern California. The program was broadcast on radio from 1930 until 1945. From 1952 to 1970, it became a syndicated television series with reruns continuing until 1975. The radio and television versions combined to make Death Valley Days one of the longest-running Western programs in broadcast history. Over the years, the program had several hosts, including Ronald Reagan, who would later become President of the United States. The series was sponsored by the Pacific Coast Borax Company. Here's Ronald Reagan doing a commercial for them. We're on a Death Valley Day set. Water's not handy. Borax or waterless hand cleaner really cleans up for us. Just a dab. Removes paint, grease, tar, carbon, ink, even plain dirt. Anytime, anywhere. By the way, 20 Mule Team Borax Cleaner is still manufactured and sold. But Death Valley Days is part of American history. 
Now, in our Ancient DX Report for the year 1924, Part 2, Ray Robinson begins with a brief summary of band usage. At that stage in radio history, most of the activity associated with radio broadcasting and radio communication took place in the long-wave section of the radio spectrum. It was still mistakenly understood by many that super-high power and massive antenna systems a mile or more in length were required for effective long-distance radio communication. For example, during 1924, the German government was in the process of installing a massive long-wave antenna system in Bavaria, which utilised a mountain range rather than tall antenna towers. Two mountaintops were chosen, one at 5,675 feet high and the other at 3,083 feet, with a T-type antenna suspended between them over a span of one and a half miles. A total of five antenna systems were planned at this installation for long-wave transmissions over a Lorentz transmitter with a massive output power of 2,500 kilowatts, or 2.5 megawatts. The United States Navy was in the process of installing a massive worldwide network of high-powered communication wireless stations located at American Navy bases on all inhabited continents. However, naval authorities admitted that ARC transmissions and SPARC transmissions were creating a considerable amount of noisy interference on the radio spectrum. Back then, in 1924, there were no regular radio broadcasting stations on the air in France, though news items and information of national importance were broadcast occasionally over a network of four communication stations. These stations were FL on the Eiffel Tower in Paris, which was a military station, with 5 kilowatts on 2600 metres, 115 kilohertz long wave. ESP in Paris, which was a PTT station with 450 watts on 450 metres, or 666 kilohertz medium wave. Station 8AJ in Paris, which was private, with 6 kilowatts on 1780 metres, 168 kilohertz long wave. And YN in Lyon, which was a commercial station with 250 watts on 740 metres, 405 kilohertz long wave. A report from Hong Kong stated that there were just two local radio broadcasting stations on the air there, though further expansion was under consideration. The two local stations were a 100-watt American-made transmitter which broadcast recorded music for one hour each evening, and the other station was a 10-watt transmitter operated by a local radio company. However, in addition to the two local stations, listeners in Hong Kong could also hear radio programming that was on the air from Shanghai, China, and from Manila in the Philippines. Radio transmissions between Srinagar and Jammu in Kashmir were successfully accomplished in 1924, despite the fact that the propagated signals were transmitted over an intervening mountain 15,000 feet in height. Six new communication transmitters were under installation in Central and North America on behalf of the United Fruit and Tropical Radio Telegraph Companies. Those new stations, rated at 20 kilowatts each, were under assembly by General Electric at Schenectady, and they were subsequently installed in Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua and Panama, as well as at New Orleans and Miami in the United States. 
A listener out in the Pacific stated that he checked the time signals each morning from two powerful longwave stations simultaneously. Station POZ was operating on 12,600 metres, just 23.8 kilohertz at Nauen in Germany, and station NPM was operating on 11,500 metres, 26 kilohertz at Honolulu in Hawaii. Both stations transmitted a time signal at midnight GMT. Back in 1924, there were 500 radio broadcasting stations already on the air in the United States, and they operated between 545 and 222 metres, or 550 and 1350 kilohertz. It was announced that soon the radio broadcasting band would be increased up to 200 metres, 1500 kilohertz, and each station would then be allotted its own specific frequency, always at 10 kilohertz separation. The Canadian National Railways announced the construction of a network of 10 medium-wave stations stretching from coast to coast across Canada. The temporary key station for this network would be commercial station CHYC in Montreal on 341 metres, 880kHz. Because of the difficulty in correctly identifying a medium-wave call sign due to static and interference, Two unique suggestions were made so that listeners could correctly identify the stations they were listening to. One suggestion was that each station should also transmit its call sign in Morse code. Another suggestion was for each letter of the alphabet to be given a number, and the announcer would spell out the call sign in both letters of the English alphabet and in numbers running from 1 to 26. Can you imagine reception conditions being so terrible that that was even necessary? The first Radio World's Fair was staged in Madison Square Garden in New York City and it was declared a huge success, not only in the large attendance, but also in the huge volume of purchases of radio equipment. The one-week-long radio fair in September 1924 attracted 165,000 visitors, the highest attendance ever at any event in Madison Square Garden. Said the commentator in the American Radio News magazine, dated for September 1924, there is a vast field for exploration on wavelengths between 50 and 200 metres. And he was referring to the shortwave spectrum running between 1500 kHz and 6000 kHz. Radio engineers discovered that shortwave signals, as compared with longwave transmissions, travel a greater distance with less power, and the effect of static is reduced. They found that signal strength was not necessarily degraded by daylight and fading was described as not noticeable. Although listeners were able to tune into shortwave radio signals, the usage of shortwave is most advantageous for the relay of programming and thus the rebroadcasting of radio programming from one location to another distant location. During 1924, the popular KDKA in Pittsburgh relayed their own programming on shortwave 8XS on 68 metres, 4,400 kHz, and WGY Schenectady relayed their own programming on 15 metres, 20 MHz. Successful programme relays from the United States were achieved via shortwave to local radio stations in Europe, South Africa, India, South America and the South Pacific. The aerial reconnaissance balloon Shenandoah was lost in a storm over the east coast of the United States after it was torn from its moorings in Lakehurst, New Jersey. 
the 300-watt transmitter NERK on shortwave 3000 kHz aboard the Shenandoah was used to communicate with medium-wave station WOR at Newark for the successful return back to the Lakehurst moorings. Over in Europe, work was progressing nicely on the construction of a huge new wireless communication station at Rugby in England. It was stated that the wireless masts at Rugby were the largest in the world, each weighing 140 tonnes and standing at 820 feet tall. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you again, Ray. And now let's go to Salahuddin Dular in Bangladesh. Dear listeners and radio hobbyists, welcome you in the July edition of Bangladesh DX Report on Weaviscan. This is Salahuddin Dollar from beautiful city Ratshahi, Bangladesh. Glad to be back and thanks for listening. The receiving log of different radio stations. July 1st, Voice of America, Udanthai, House of Program was heard at 1523 UTC on 15460 kHz. The SIO code was 454. Vatican Radio, OM Talking in Amharic, was heard at 1538 UTC on 15565 kHz. The SIO code was 333. Radio Free Asia, Uyghur Service, OM Presenting Report, was heard at 1635 UTC on 15700 kHz. The SIO code was 343. KBS World Radio, Indonesian Service, while talking was heard at 1645 UTC on 9805 kHz. The SIO code was 323. KBS World Radio, Korean Service, OM Discussion in Korean, was heard at 1650 UTC on 9740 kHz. The SIO code was 343. Voice of Vietnam, Russian service. A song was heard at 1652 UTC on 9730 kHz. The SIO code was 333. BBC, the SIO code was 333. Ibra Media via Irivan Gavar Safety Language Program was heard at 1740 UTC on 7510 kHz. The SIO code was 333. July 2nd, Reese Beyond Australia Hindi service while talking about bedbug was heard at 1205 UTC on 9590 kHz. The SIO code was 444. Radio Thailand English 50 kHz, the SIO code was 444. Radio Saudi Arabia, Urdu service, discussion on how to behave with relatives was heard at 1250 UTC on 13775 kHz, the SIO code was 444. Voice of America, Santa Maria di Gloria, Portuguese language program was heard at 1737 UTC on 17655 kHz, the SIO code was 
1844. Trans World Radio Arabic language program was heard at 1743 UTC on 17745 kilohertz. The save code was 333. July 3rd, Deutsche Welle via Isudan Amharic service. OM presenting report was heard at 1615 UTC on 17800 kilohertz. The save code was 322. We want to thank Mr. Pradeep Chandra Kundu of Tripura, India for sharing his log with us. If you have any comments and suggestion and if you want to get our QSL card, please send your reception report to the following email address dxbangla at the rate gmail.com. The address again dxbangla dxbangla at the rate gmail.com. Okay, I will come with more DX news in the next edition. Till then, take care. Salahuddin Dollar, Ratshahi, Bangladesh. Thank you, Salahuddin. And we end with some music uh, from a CD that was sent to us by Daniel Castro. He is the musical director at the United Methodist Church in Huntington Park, California. And uh, this uh, title song from the CD is Jubilosos Te Adoramos, or Jubilant, We Adore You. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson. Next week, medium wave KDKA at its four shortwave locations. And our Australian DX report from Bob Padula. That and more next week on WaveScan. Several QSL cards are available for the program. Send your AWR and KSDA reception reports to the AWR address in Thailand. I'll give you in a moment. And also to the radio station that you were tuned to, WRMI or WWCR or KVOH or Voice of Hope Africa or to IRRS Italy or to the AWR relay stations that carry WaveScan. Remember, too, you can send a reception report to the DX reporters when their segment is on the air here in WaveScan. They will also verify with their own colorful QSL card. Return postage and an address label are always appreciated. The email address for AWR QSLs is qsl at awr.org. The postal address for AWR QSL cards is Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, that's P-R-A-K-A-N-O-N-G, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. Again, Adventist World Radio, P.O. Box 234, Prakanong, Bangkok, 10110, Thailand. And the email address for other correspondence to WaveScan, not reception reports, is wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida, in the United States. Till next week, good listening, everyone. Mm-hmm.